All right. So, I was excited to hear about the series uh, being, focused, being focused on tests of faith in the Bible. And today, our focus will be on Joseph's narrative, the narrative of Joseph in the book of Genesis, which brings the book of Genesis to a close. But if you think about the book of Genesis in general, we know that it is a book of beginnings. Um, it's the beginning of the created world, uh, the beginning of time, if you will, night and day is, be- is began at that time. Um, beginning of the oceans and the land and the sea and the creatures uh, that live in them. And the beginning of the heavens and the earth. Uh, even the beginning of sin's reign in the world. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, the beginning of God's judgment on that sin. We see the flood. Uh, and soon after that, the Tower of Babel. Um, then there, there are a number of things that could be listed, obviously, because Genesis is intended to be that foundational book that tells us about our beginnings and informs us on our worldview. The book of Genesis is also, though, and more, more importantly, where we begin to see some of the bedrock truths about God that are essential for faithfulness in trials. And so this morning, as we consider Joseph's narrative, that's exactly what we're going to see Two truths about God that will solidify your faith among trials. And I'm going to give them to you up front. And then the hope is that as we work through the narrative, you're going to see these things evident over and over again. And those two truths are, number one, that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He has the right and the authority to rule his creation however he pleases, however he sees fit. But then also, and I think it's a beautiful other side to the coin of God's sovereignty, is the fact that he works all things together for his good purposes. He works all things together for his good purposes. Now, please keep those in mind, and I'll help you remember too, as we work through Joseph's narrative. God is sovereign, and he works all things for his good purposes. We're going to start off right at the beginning of his narrative in chapter 37, verse 1. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan, and these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report to them of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. Excuse me. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And he said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Let's stop right there. We immediately see two things about Joseph, or one thing about Joseph, sorry. And that is that his brothers hated him. And it's for two reasons that are clear in the text. Number one, his father Jacob loved him more than all the other brothers. He's got 11 brothers. Jacob was showing favoritism to his son. Now we know previously God did a work in Jacob's life that brought him to full submission to the Lord. But at the same time we see here Jacob's still not a perfect father. Showing favoritism to to the son that he chose to. And the second thing is because of these dreams. It says in verse 5 when he told his brothers These dreams, they hated him even more. Now, why is that? I'm going to summarize it for you. It's because two times, Joseph being the second youngest brother, says to his older brothers, 
You're going to bow down to me. And again, in the next paragraph, you're going to bow down to me. And that second time, it didn't just include his brothers. It included his mother and father as well. You're going to bow down to me. Now, you can imagine, especially if you're an older sibling, your twerp younger sibling comes to you and tells you that. You immediately shake it off. And they already hated him. So you can see why this would intensify that hatred even more. And yes, he's the younger brother, but he's also 17 years old. So not to place any malintent on Joseph, because I don't think that there is any, because the, the Bible doesn't say anything. But at the very least, Joseph clearly lacks a little bit of tactfulness and discretion here as he's continually telling his brothers, you're going to bow down to me, you're going to bow down to me. But nonetheless, we see here that's Joseph's dilemma. His brothers hate him. But the second, there's two things primarily that this chapter focuses on. Joseph's dilemma, his brothers hate him, but also what is really amplified by the second part of this chapter is how evil his older brothers are. And so we're basically just going to meet the family here real quick. And there's four brothers that, are, that we know about for, at this point in Genesis. Um, and we're going to see them as a whole. So as the narrative moves along, uh, there's a time when Joseph's brothers are pasturing a flock away from uh, Jacob. And we see, again, jo- Jacob's favoritism. Joseph is with Jacob rather than off with his brothers pasturing the flock. Jacob sends Joseph to his brothers to check on him to bring a report back. And in chapter 37, verse 18, it says that they, all the brothers, they saw him from afar. And before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. And they said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Literally in the Hebrew, you can, hear, you can see their sarcasm. It's here comes the master of dreams. And the, verse 20, come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we'll say a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what will become of his dreams. And so here we meet the first individual brother. We see the collective wants to kill him. Now Reuben steps up. And Reuben, the picture painted of him, not just in this uh, narrative, but also previously in the book of Genesis, is not a good one. We're first introduced to to Reuben's actions. We we hear that he's born way back in the narrative, but there's this random action of Reuben's that's one verse inserted into the middle of chapter 35. You don't have to turn there. But it says that Reuben slept with his father's concubine. And then later, in chapter 49, when Jacob is giving his sons blessings before he dies, the only thing that's said of Reuben is that um, he's not going to have the preeminence, even though he's the firstborn, and uh, he's unstable as water and wicked, and it says that uh, because he slept with his father's concubine. So the whole picture we have painted of Reuben throughout this entire narrative is a negative one. And it might seem noble at first, that he's sticking up for Joseph here. But if you keep reading, after he persuades them to just throw him in the pit alive, a few verses later, when he finds out that they actually turned on Reuben and sold him into, uh, to Egypt, you'll look with me at verse 29 of chapter 37. When Reuben returned to the pit, he saw that Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. So again, here it looks noble for a second. But then look what he says. Where'd it go? What shall I do? Or sorry, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? 
I believe that Reuben was only focused on getting right in his father's eyes. Because this happens again later in the narrative where Reuben rashly just stands up for something and it makes absolutely no sense what he says in the narrative. And it seems clear. The point here being, Reuben, the oldest child, is evil. He's only got himself in mind. He's unstable in all his ways, the text later says. Unstable as water, I believe it says. So he's rash, making bad decisions. He was supposed to be the leader of the group as the oldest. We also know, just as a side note, they're not in this narrative, but previously Simeon and Levi's actions are mentioned. In chapter 34, um, the, the, some Canaanite men defiled their sister. And so in order to take revenge, they tell these men, all right, if you circumcise yourself, we'll let you marry our sister and you can have her. But instead, they deceived those men. And after, after it says that the days, by the time that those men were sore, they went and slaughtered all of them. These men are evil and wicked. Uh, it says later in the text, or later during the blessing passage again, that uh, their anger was fierce and their wrath uh, was cruel. And it's again, they're spoken of negatively. So again, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, the three oldest brothers, wicked. Wicked men. And notice too, just to point out the collective whole again, verse 25, after they throw him into the pit originally, and he's alive, they sat down to eat. You can imagine that. It says later in the narrative, Reuben, Reuben uh, mentions uh, when Joseph finally confronts him that, um, that they heard the distress of his soul and they heard him begging them to stop. And they didn't listen. These men are evil and wicked. Finally, there's Judah, fourth, fourth oldest. And Judah actually takes the lead here. Um, he sees a caravan of traders rolling by, and he, and he says in verse 26, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him for the Ishmaelites, to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our own flesh. So nice of you, Judah. Again, we see here Judah taking the lead, but he's taking the lead in evil. He's leading the rest of the brothers in the evil. And they rally around him and they agree to it. But the next chapter, we're not going to focus on it today, but I just need to touch on it because Judah is perhaps the wickedest of them all. Um, the whole chapter, all of chapter 38 is devoted to showing us that. Um, immediately after Jacob sold into Egypt, um, it speaks as if it's like the very next moment. Judah is walking and he, and he sees a woman and he turns to the side and it says that he goes into her and he has children with her. Um, and uh, one of those, the first son gets married, dies because of his wickedness. The second son marries that same daughter-in-law, dies because of his wickedness. The third one was too young to marry her, so Judah tells her, "Just wait till he's old enough, then you, then you can, then I'll redeem you, and you're all good." But he doesn't follow through with it for years and years, and so Tamar understands the type of man that Judah is. And so she disguises herself as a prostitute in order to see her line carry on. And sure enough, Judah, walking down the road again, turns to the side and goes into her. Same thing. He's a wicked, lustful, greedy man. This is the family that we're introduced to in, verse, in chapter 37. 
wicked, just pure wickedness. All of them except for one. Benjamin isn't discussed here, but Joseph is the shining light, it seems, in the midst of this family. And on top of all that, all these men were willing to, to disrespect their father in such a way as well because they had no honor for him either. They knew that Joseph was the one that he loved most, and yet they're willing to deceive him and make, Joseph think, or make Jacob think that Joseph's dead. These men are evil, and that's the picture that's being painted of them here in this chapter. But remember, the two truths about God that we're going to see are evident throughout this whole uh, message, that he is sovereign and he works all things, emphasis on all things for his good. Chapter 39, we pick back up with Joseph, uh, verse 1, and here's proof, proof perfect, that perfect example that God is here, he's working this, during this whole time. I'm going to read the beginning of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. And notice, notice the Lord was with Joseph, excuse me, and he became a successful man. And he was in the house of the, his Egyptian master, and his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he had to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in, the, in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. And from the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and blessed, the blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge because of him, and because of him he had no concern about anything but the food he ate. Clearly, the Lord is sovereignly working even in this time of trial for Joseph. But we see not only God working, what I, I find amazing in this whole, past, this whole narrative is Joseph's faithfulness. And we know the story. He's, he's in Potiphar's house serving Potiphar. Uh, we're going to pick up in verse 6. Potiphar, or, yeah, it says at the beginning of verse, end of verse 6, now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. But he refused. Now, now pay attention here. He refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of my master, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. And he is not greater in his house than I am. Nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against my master? That's not what the text says. How can I sin against God? Joseph knows that God is sovereign and works all things for his good purposes. Because of that, jo Joseph has a high view of God and sinning against him. Because he knows what's right and wrong in God's eyes. And I, in studying for this, I asked myself the question, where does this come from? Where does, how does he know that this is sin? How does he, it, the, the law doesn't come for another couple hundred years in the book of Exodus. I think it is evident in the book of Genesis, though. Well, turn with me, look real quick at chapter 18 of Genesis. 
Where does the faith of Joseph come from? His understanding of God. Chapter 18, verse 17. The Lord said, and this is on the verge of uh, the Lord heading to Sodom and Gomorrah to judge him, to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He says in verse 17 of chapter 18, The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? Verse 19, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. And so what am I getting at here? I believe that Abraham faithfully taught Isaac the ways of the Lord and how to do righteousness and justice in the Lord's eyes. Isaac, in spite of his few failures, teaches the same thing to Jacob, how to do the ways of the Lord and to do righteousness and justice in his eyes. And the same thing Isaac teaches Jacob. And we know that Jacob was a deceiver, a wicked man, but nonetheless the Lord works in his life and we see him change and submit himself to the ways of the Lord. And I believe Joseph is a direct beneficiary of that reality because Joseph spent all kinds of time with Jacob, I'm sure, and Jacob taught him the ways of the Lord. I say all this as a side note, especially to parents, myself included. Teach your children the ways of the Lord. We know that we have no power at all to save them. We have no power at all to to truly convict them of their sin. That's a sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. But nonetheless, we can teach them the ways of the Lord. And that could be a means that the Lord uses one day to turn their hearts to himself. Be faithful. Be a faithful parent just as these men were. And back to chapter 39. In spite of his faithfulness, Joseph is still unjustly accused. And we know that at the end of verse, or chapter 39. But again, the emphasis of this message is the fact that God is sovereign and he works all things for his good purposes. All things. And so now we're going to switch gears into Joseph's imprisonment. And again, we see, it's like the Lord wants us to see these things immediately as soon as he's sent to the prison. Look at verse 19 of chapter 39. As soon as his master heard these wor- the words that his wife spoken to him, saying, this way your servant treated me, his anger, Potiphar's anger, was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of all the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Joseph's right where the Lord wants him at this time. God is sovereign. and He works all things for his good, his good purposes. Now, the emphasis of these next few chapters, as, as, you, as many of you know the story, I'm sure, is prophecy, prophetic dreams that Joseph has. Um, there's two regarding the Pharaoh's servants, uh, which uh, we know it ends up bad for one of them, losing his head. Um, but the other one, both of, the point is with these prophets, the prophetic dreams is that, again, God is sovereign and he brings all things to pass. This is, this is verification of that fact because God gives the interpretation of the dream and it happens. 
Just like we're going to see back to the, the emphasis of the initial dreams, that you're going to bow down to me, you're going to bow down to me, you're going to see that happen again at the end of the narrative. And nonetheless, in spite of the fact that, that he helped uh, essentially give these men um, hope, and one eventually gets out and goes back to his position in, in Pharaoh's palace, Joseph tells him, please remember me. Then the next verse says, two years later, Pharaoh had a dream. So faithfulness doesn't always mean instant gratification either, just as another side note. But we're called to faithfulness in the Lord because we know that God is sovereign and he works all things for his good purposes. So to Pharaoh's dream now, which again, we're going to see the same thing, verification of the fact of God's sovereignty and his good purposes coming true. Uh, Chapter 41, verse 1. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile, and behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. And behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly thin cows ate up the seven attractive cows, and Pharaoh awoke. And then he fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. (coughs) And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump full ears, and Pharaoh awoke. And behold, it was a dream. So in the morning his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. And Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Verse 9, then the chief cupbearer said to Pharaoh, I remember my offenses today when Pharaoh was angry with his servants and put me and the chief baker in custody in the house of the captain of the guard. Basically goes on to say, I remember Joseph. There's a guy there. He's in the prison still. He can interpret your dream. I think you know what happens next. Joseph, Joseph, prophesi- Joseph explains the Pharaoh's dreams to himself, prophesies what's going to happen says because the two similar dreams, God's surely going to bring it to pass. You'll notice if you read through these um, chapters on your own that what Joseph does almost every single time he speaks is points to God. He says, God is the one who gives the interpretation. Sure, he's using me, but God is the one who's giving the interpretation. And Pharaoh gets the point. Or sorry, first, also Joseph gives Pharaoh the advice of what he should do in spite of the fact or in light of the fact that there's seven years of plenty coming before seven years of famine. And Pharaoh loves the idea. And look at chapter 41, verse 37. Pharaoh understands, because Joseph's been pointing to God the whole time. He says, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all of his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. The lips of a pagan are praising God's name right now because of Joseph's faithfulness. But what's even more interesting is that six years later, it says in verse 50, before the year of famine came, So he said seven years of plenty and then famine. So one year before, this is six years after Joseph's rise to power. 
He's basically on top of the world in Egypt. It's said that uh, Joseph said, or sorry, Pharaoh said, only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Joseph was commanding all the affairs of Egypt at that time. And six years after that, material prosperity. Verse 50, it says, Before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On, bore them to him. Now listen here, 51. Chapter 41, verse 51. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. That's a Hebrew name. And he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim. Again, a Hebrew name. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Six years of being literally commander of the known world. And he still considers Egypt the land of his affliction. Again, I think pointing back to the, the faithfulness of the, his forefathers, he knew that he didn't belong in Egypt. He belonged in Canaan, the land that God had promised them. And he sees himself that way, even after six years of this. The land of his affliction. Joseph's continual faithfulness. Because he knows that God is sovereign and he works all things for his good purposes. He predicts the drought, and the drought comes. Sure enough. End of chapter 41. Verse 56. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Verse 57, especially. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. So it's not just a localized drought. This is something that's affecting the worldwide economy. Everything. There's a drought everywhere. And, again, we see God's sovereignty at work. Him bringing his perfect plans to pass. Very next verse. Chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? In other words, what are you waiting for? Behold, I've heard there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go. You can see it happening right right before your eyes in the Scripture. God working out His plans for His good purposes. There's one place in the world that still has food, and Jacob says to his sons, go. Now the next few chapters, um, we know that Joseph, this is um, when when his brothers first go to Egypt, it's approximately 22 years after the initial time in the pit for Joseph. So Joseph's no doubt physically much more mature, looks a lot different, let alone the fact that he was, it would have been an Egyptian garb, which meant shaving the head, shaving all the hair off your face, uh, even putting makeup on to make you look funky. Um, and so he looks different, and, and he's, he's able to maintain his anonymity early on, and he tests his brothers. He remembers the wickedness they did to him, and he's testing them to see if there's been any change. And lo and behold, it comes in verse, or chapter 44, I'm not going to read through it, but in chapter 44 we see evidence of the most drastic change in the least expected person, and that's Judah. Judah goes from being this lustful, impulsive, greedy man, self-centered man, to the man who's willing to sacrifice himself and bear the guilt of losing Jacob's other son, Benjamin, the son whom he loved. 
Just a complete change in person. And at that point, Joseph knows that God is working in this family, and that's when he's overcome by his emotions, and we'll pick up in verse 45, or chapter 45, verse 1. Here we see the, the, basically the reveal after this time of testing and he sends his brothers back to Canaan and back to Egypt and back to Canaan and back to Egypt back and forth testing these guys. And it says after Judah reveals his new selflessness, the, the evident grace that God is working in his life, 45 verse 1, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with, by him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. Verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I'm your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Listen. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, excuse me, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Here, we see it abundantly evident, and Joseph knows it, that God is sovereign. God was working his good purposes this whole time in the life of Joseph. And interestingly enough, um, well, not interestingly, but Pharaoh, fast forward a little bit, Pharaoh hears of this. He, he loves Joseph. He wants to see Joseph do well, and when he hears that his family is returned, Pharaoh says, come on, bring him in. We'll put him in the land of Goshen, the most fruitful land in all of Egypt. And there they begin to prosper as a people. And the interesting part is that on the way there, God speaks to Jacob telling him that it's in Egypt that I'm going to turn you into a nation. They took 66 people into the land of Egypt and left with 2 million plus in the Exodus with Moses. God is sovereign, and he's working his purposes this whole time. It's amazing to think about. And everything at this point seems to be on the up and up, up until chapter 50. So turn with me there. And this is sort of the climax of this whole narrative, and really this whole book, as I think you'll see in in our next few moments. I'm going to read in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now... Please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him. That's actually the third time we didn't go through the other two times. That's the third time that they have come and fell down before him and bowed down to him, just as he prophesied in the beginning. 
His brothers came and fell down before him, verse 18, and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Notice the word meant there. This is speaking not just like this evil happened and God turned it for good. No, God meant this evil to happen for the sake of his good purposes. And that's one of the great mysteries of, of how this world works. And it's where we, what we see is the beginning of how God's going to work throughout the rest of redemptive history is the fact that he will work even through the sinful intentions of sinful mankind to bring about his good purposes. This is a bookend. Think about all the way back to chapter 3, verse 15, or the fall in general. These very same words could, be, could have been spoken to the serpent. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. It's an amazing thing. God is sovereign, and he works all things for his good purposes. Now, I've been saying that this whole time. Hopefully that it will be seared into your memory by the time you leave here, because like I said, this is one, these are two of the bedrock truths that our faith needs to rest on, especially in the time of trial, when things aren't going our way, the way that we wish they would go. The second half, though, I know we know what God is sovereign means. Just, that's just speaking of his right to rule and his authority over all of creation to do with it whatever he pleases. He's sovereign. But that second part, his the fact that he brings all of his good purposes to pass, there's a, there's a theological term that's helpful to remember, and it's called it's providence. God's providence is essentially how he works out his sovereignty for his good purposes. And so the, the, the thing about prov- providence is, though, within our, um, our finite human minds, is that we really can only see it looking back. We don't see it until everything's already played out. But God, in his infinite foreknowledge, knows everything. He knows the begin from the ending. The, the end from the beginning. And he brings it all to pass. And so, what I want to do now, as we come to a close, is consider two things. The literary um, significance of God's providence, meaning we're going to look back and think about what, is, what exactly is happening here in the book of Joseph. What are the bigger, what's the bigger picture that's going on here? And then also, in light of all of redemptive history, what God is even doing to this day. And so, regarding the literary structure, or the literary context of Genesis and what we see in the book of Joseph, we know that prominent in this book of Genesis, the whole book, there are three main themes that come in the form of a promise to Abraham. And they are seed, blessing, and land. Those three things are promised to Abraham. And as redemptive history is played out, we see exactly what God meant by those things. But I want you to think about those things, how they pertain to Joseph's narrative. First seed, chapter 50, verse 20, where we ended. This is proof, this is a huge point too. The good that God is talking about in chapter 50, verse 20 is not material prosperity. I can say that with full confidence. It's got nothing to do with Joseph going from the pit to the palace. It's not this heroic moral story of you be faithful and God will bless you in material ways. And I can tell you that for certainty because of what he says after the, the kind of the, 
the big verse that brings it home. Chapter 50, verse 20. You meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. Why? To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. That's his good purpose in all that he did with Joseph. That's his good purpose. And now, back to the literary context, what's going on here? As I already mentioned, there are 66 people from the family of Abraham that go into Egypt. Apart from Joseph being moved around how God moved him, they perish. God is preserving his nation, and not only preserving them, but he's going to multiply them in Egypt before he sends them back to the land. That's his good purpose in Joseph's life, saving his people. Let's think about blessing as well. God said that all the nations of the earth would be blessed in Abraham. Now, this is not the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, but nonetheless, are not all the nations blessed in Abraham's family in this passage? The whole world was at a famine. The whole world has to come. Anybody who wants to survive has to come to Egypt. They're blessing the world. Now, let's think even even bigger picture here. Where are they at the end of the book of Genesis? It says that Joseph, at the very last, uh, the very last verse of the whole thing, says that they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. That's where the nation, the nation, sorry, the sixty-six people of their family is ended right now. In other words, they're not in the land that God has promised. And this again points to the fact that the good that Joseph is talking about is not Egypt. Because think about it, if it was, he would be telling his sons, this is how you need to rule. Let me, let me give you some tips and, and insights on how you should do this when you take it over for me. Plant your roots deep here. Let's stay. The land is fruitful here. No. How does Joseph end his life? Chapter 50, verse 23 Joseph saw his grandchildren. Um, Verse 24, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die. So on his deathbed, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and he will bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. Joseph saying, this is not our home. I know we're not going to be staying here long. I'm dying, but take me with you when we leave because God's taken us back. The good that he has in mind has nothing to do with the material prosperity here. It's God's good purposes. God's good purposes. The promise that he had previously made. Now, there's two ways that the seed promise is referred to, and this is crucial to understand. Just hear me out. In the plural form, we see that God's referring to the nation of Israel. It says that the, the sons of Abraham would be as numerous as the stars of the heavens and the dust of the earth. But we know from the New Testament, reading back into the Old, that the seed also referred to one singular person. That person being the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And again, just like the rest of the nation, the line of Judah, where Jesus comes from, interestingly enough, not the line of Joseph, the line of Judah, The line of Judah perishes as well with the famine. God is using Joseph for his good purposes, keeping the line of the Messiah alive. And we see Judah's name. You don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 1, clearly Judah is listed in the lineage of Christ and Judah's son who's born out of wedlock. 
All this because of God's intention to work His good, even by the acts of sinful men. Now, there's an ultimate expression of this reality. The fact that God works His perfect plans and purposes for the sake of His good, for the sake of the good that He has determined. And we see it clearly in Acts chapter 2. Please turn there with me. Acts chapter 2. Chapter 2, we'll start in verse 22. Just a little bit of context. This is Peter's sermon immediately following Pentecost when the Holy Spirit first came on the church. And he's preaching to an Israelite crowd that included leaders and other followers of Judaism. And he says in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, Verse 23, this Jesus, here we go, delivering, delivered up to the, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. There we see it again. God's good purposes being worked out through the sinful intentions of mankind. Not just to bring about his good purposes, but to bring about the, the best good that he could bring to all of humanity. Salvation in Christ. Open to anyone who will repent and turn to him and follow after this God that we see acting throughout everything we've covered so far. And so how does all this apply to our lives today? How do we apprehend this and live this truth out? As I already mentioned, this, this series is, called, is, is, based, or is focusing on tests of faith. And what more does a person need than the realities that God is sovereign? And he works all things for his good purposes. There's nothing that can touch those realities. Even the sinful intentions of wicked man cannot touch those realities. No matter how hard things get, God is faithful to those promises. And we began in Romans 8.28, and I want to close there as well. Romans 8.28 says that we know that for those who love God, all things, Emphasis on all things. Work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And again, just to emphasize, it's not about material good. Read the next verse. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Your trials, every single one of them, have come through God's hand designed specifically for you to be conformed to the image of his son. He's bringing everything in your life, good, evil, even your own sin, he will use to conform you to the image of his son, to prepare you for glory with him. Praise God. He is sovereign, and he brings all of his good purposes to pass. I want to conclude by reading a couple of the questions and responses from the Heidelberg Catechism that I love. Question number one. What do you understand by the providence of God? Remember I said providence is that second half of what I've been saying this whole time. How God works his purposes for his good. What do you understand by the providence of God? God's providence, answer, God's providence is his almighty and ever-present power. Whereby, as with his hand, 
He still upholds heaven and earth and all creatures and so governs them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, food and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, indeed all things come to us, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Question number two, what does it benefit us to know that God has created all things and still upholds them by his providence? We can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. God is sovereign. And he works all things for his purposes. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for these two realities. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for us in Christ. Thank you that there's nothing ultimately that can harm us in this world because to die is our gain at this point. So, Lord, may all of our hearts be encouraged towards faithfulness to you in trials. Even when times are hard, even when our flesh fights against your will for our lives. Lord, grant us faithfulness by your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.